Welcome to the Architects of Ambition, the podcast where dreams take shape and futures are built. I'm Lyndon Dover, your guide on this journey of discovery and design, brought to you by Weaver, the online platform that's connecting contractors with the visionaries of architecture. Every episode, we delve into the minds of those who dare to imagine and create the spaces we live, work and play in. Let's get started. Davide, thanks so much for your time today and being on the podcast. It's great to have you here. Hi, Lyndon. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. And um, I love the fact that you're on site. So we've got a nice blue screen. Uh, <laughs> architects don't just work in offices. You are live from uh, a site at the moment. That's brilliant. Um, well, look, before we dive into the hot topic of what we're terming the greening revolution, how small UK practices like yours are building a path to a sustainable future. Before we, we dig into that meaty conversation, tell us a bit more about you and your practice and, and how you got to where you are today. That'd be great. Yes, of course. So um, Unagru is small, we're six of us, architecture practice. We have a, quite a varied uh, backgrounds. Uh, mine, for example, is uh, also is in architecture, of course, but also in ecology and landscape, uh, large scales. I have a PhD in this um, sector sector and i uh, also teach sometimes uh, these topics but my yeah, most of our stuff is uh, more traditionally architects and especially young architects uh, really like um, residential domestic projects so that's that's the bulk of our work uh, domestic projects we try to have we try to have a specific angle when we work on a project and our main areas of focus are um, experimentation and research in architecture so so we want to make sure that that uh, we're not just part of of a system that churns out projects but that there is a reflection on every project and the reflection is usually a conversation between us the clients the building and the environment and yeah the second aspect is is really is ecology and um and here i use the word ecology rather than sustainability or environmentalism or environmentally friendly design because uh, ecology is uh, is a kind of a way of thinking things, which uh, takes into account complexity. Well, what, what I was describing before, a conversation with a situation is of, I think, thinking ecologically. And also has a wider idea of what is good for the environment. Uh, it has to do also with biodiversity and several other things. So with uh, kind of the, armed with these two values and intentions, we face uh, every project I think with the aim of making something special and uh, also hopefully joyful and, and 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 nice to live in and i mean so far i think we've had a few kind of nice projects we've won a few awards we are often uh at london open house our clients don't hate us so <laughs> so i think we've been Things we've been relatively well. successful we're looking also to diversify a little bit our, our portfolio so we we completed a couple of uh, restaurants last year, and, yeah, we're, and also a few uh, schemes, a few larger schemes with more than one flat or mixed use. And we're looking to to work on, on more of those. We're working on one now, for example, in Kingston. I think uh, variety is is what we're looking for right now, as well as carrying on working with our amazing clients and smaller projects, domestic projects. That's great. Well, going into you know the topic of conversation today, like. It's interesting what you said about some of uh, how you phrase or how you have values around ecology, obviously with your PhD background. But I think there are a lot of buzzwords uh, around uh, eco-friendly building or um, passive house. You know, some people, it feels like a lot of people know a little bit and maybe have, have in-depth knowledge in one area, but it's hard to keep up with everything uh, that's coming to the forefront. 
how do you perceive your current state of knowledge and awareness among small practices? And what I mean by that is not yours specifically, but your peers, your other architects, like how how well are they upskilled um, in ecology or in environmentally friendly, sustainable construction? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to judge people's knowledge. I think that um, it's um, rather than just a scale of knowledge, there's, there's several points of views of you and uh, several angles with which people kind of tackle the, the issue. I think it's, it's front and center in everyone's mind. In some people's minds is a, a kind of a marketing thing. In other people's minds is like a straightforward, uh, let's reduce the emissions of every single building. In others, yeah, uh, others are, are more kind of activists and uh, therefore their projects really are only um, focused on this specific aspect of the issue. I think overall, there is a lot of confusion. There is a lot of kind of superficial knowledge and therefore uh, projects will take whatever happens during the project, whether it's a client or a contractor or, you know, finance, will take the upper hand and will eventually steer the project towards where it wants to go rather than where the environment would want it to go, or whether the world, yes, would want it to go. And it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard. I mean, I, I'm, I'm saying this with my maximum understanding. It's, it's, it's very, very hard because there are several voices. There are several, again, positions and point of views, even, even in academia, even like at every level. And, um, and it's already a hard job and a lot of responsibilities is going to place on architects. And sometimes you have to convince the client, the contractor, almost the government that <laughs> what, what needs to be done. So it's a lot of work. Well, I, I know that you, as well as um, you got many hats that you wear as an architect, just in general every day, I'm sure. But you also run a or part of No More Gas, um, which is uh, tell us a bit more about that. You know, you're helping um, not just your peers there, but also um, the layman understand how we can get rid of our boilers, um, our gas boilers today. And uh, yeah, tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, basically, we just built. Number Gas. So Number Gas is a is a little platform. It's a little website we built uh, ourselves, and we researched and then built the website where people people or designers, of course, can uh, find alternatives to gas boilers uh, for their projects. So there's there's a little selector based on you know, size and type of project, and then a few options to uh, avoid installing new gas boilers. It it stemmed from from the war in Ukraine a little bit. It was like a little bit of a anger. Uh, for feeling impotent in front of the war against the war, but also it quickly became a little uh, a, a, a bit of a rabbit hole in terms of in terms of uh, research. So yeah, so we like to do research probably by chance. We, the issue of gas borders and and emissions coming from gas borders um, has become more and more interesting, and I think it's, it should be more and more central in 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 people's conversation. Essentially, what should have been one or two blog posts about, about gas boilers. So w when we started researching uh, No More Gas, our, our first idea was to identify an overlap between environmental uh, causes and geopolitical causes. Uh, so gas clearly, well, it, it was easily identifiable as a, a friend of several aggressive uh, um, tyrannies, uh, especially in Europe now that we know, but all around the world and easily also identifiable as a source of greenhouse gas. Quickly, we found out that, especially in advanced countries like the, the UK and generally Europe, the environmental aspect of the environmental um, 
kind of damages uh, created by by gas and gas spoilers is completely underestimated, or it's not it's not essential to the conversation as it should be. And so, I mean, I didn't know that, and so it, it became a little bit of a rabbit hole for uh, of research. And um, one of the things I read was a, a bo- eight boilers, eight, eight gas boilers are replaced every minute in the UK. Every minute, it's I incredible. can't believe that. That's incredible. It's incredible. Wow. Yeah. So basically, what the, the two things that are happening that make it so important. One is that the uh, the, the the grid in the UK is ap- rapidly decarbonizing. So, so the emissions coming from uh, electricity production is is falling. Uh, th- so this means that uh, alternatives to gas boilers that are electric um, are more and more eco-friendly. It used to be that uh, electric alternatives. Um, would use electricity on, on, on site, but then that electricity was produced by a very carbon-intensive grid. Therefore, the two, the two alternatives were not that different, whereas instead the grid is decarbonizing very quickly. And so uh, in this, in this uh, landscape, the combination of all the gas boilers in the UK, which is 17 million, is incredible, uh, is uh, their emissions are much higher than the combination of all the UK's power. So our emissions are fundamentally cars and gas boilers and power plants, but gas boilers are a lot. On the other hand, why is it not... Uh, so you would, you would imagine that the, the issue is front and center to if we want to achieve net zero, etc. On top of that, gas boilers can kill someone because of carbon monoxide and uh, you know the combination of thousands of of uh, carbon uh, of uh, gas boilers in an urban setting also greatly uh, impor- uh, reduces the quality of, of uh, the air quality and therefore you know asthma allergies etc so uh, it's it's clearly an enemy the problem is that it's it's very hard uh, it's a very hard problem a power plant you know it's a few engineers a couple of billion pounds sorted the uh, boiler is millions of households, millions of buildings that usually are in dire sta- uh, conditions and that require a lot of power that, that, that were essentially built around the gas boiler. So the gas boiler was like the perfect fit from them, for them, and probably still is, uh, from several points of view, except that we need to get rid of them. Because unless we do, uh, we will never achieve net zero. If you imagine that we are replacing... Uh, last year we replaced the 60,000. So we, we installed 60,000 uh, heat pumps instead of 600,000, which was the target. So there's a lot, a lot of work to do. And, and uh, yeah, so I, w- I was surprised that it wasn't uh, as central as, as I think it should be. And, um, and so we found, we, we, we researched alternatives to gas boilers that were not just the heat pumps. So that's no, then, then you go in, okay, so why are we not replacing more of these gas boilers? Well, it, it's not easy, but also um, the, the main solution that is proposed to anyone is the heat pump. The heat pump is, is a, an incredible invention. It's a beautiful machine, and it's the best. When, it's, when you can install it, it's the best possible thing. I mean, it's, it's mad. Except that, of course, you can't install a heat pump everywhere because you need an external unit, quite expensive. The house needs to have the... the a certain degree of, of insulation, of, of, of tightness and insulation. Otherwise, the heat pump will just not make it. I mean, slowly but surely, they're getting better, yeah? But, I mean, let's assume the typical case, you know, have a you know, 65, 70 square meters flat uh, ex-council house or current council house or, or you know, a Victorian uh, or Edwardian uh, uh, buildings to split in flats or small houses. I mean, 
it's not it's not easy to imagine how to install uh, that you will install the heat pumps everywhere. And so we need alternatives. Yeah. So I thought, well, I mean, are there any alternatives? And actually, there are, and a few are uh, UK based. Uh, so there's one company called Tepeo, T-E-P-E-O, that produced this uh, washing machine size uh, electric boiler that's essentially a big heat battery. It's very clever, and it kind of charges at night when the electricity is very cheap, and then releases this heat during the day. And these companies, they're a bit of startups. They, 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 need, they need help. They need incentives. They need to be front and center in the, in, in the conversations. And there's several others. The, the, the flat I'm in is, um, has no gas, of course, and it's uh, all heated by, by uh, infrared panels that are here, just above my head. And oh, wow. In the ceiling? They're, they're in, yeah. They're plastered in, so they're invisible. And That's so amazing. this whole, yeah. I've seen, I've seen plastered in uh, speakers before, but I've never yes. heard of plastered in um, infrared panels. Oh, it's invisible, yeah. So, I mean, now it's off, so that's why I'm wearing all these clothes. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but when it's on, you have these infrared cameras and you, you will see these panels. And it's just, and infrared is, is, is uh, interesting because it's um, kind of a healthier form of heat. It doesn't, it doesn't dry as much the air and it heats all the objects around you, so it's more consistent and it's not as um, disturbed by drafts or someone opening a window because it's not it's not the air that's warm it's the objects the fabric that's warm i feel like so, we I mean, have a whole podcast about infrared panels and why they're on the ceiling not on the floor and yeah, i've yes. got so many questions for you but yes we can keep those yes um, so but, okay. uh, anyway we found many we found many uh, alternatives to, to gas and then we started kind of campaigning a little bit and then we thought well the best thing we can do is to is to build a website so people can find things and then um, I'm trying to get, so then uh, kind of, I'm in touch with several kind of um, institutions and associations that are, are studying the topic. And again, everyone has a slightly, a slightly different angle. Um, also with the GLA, who are, of course, very concerned about air quality. And uh, about, um, so they're looking for, for ideas to, you know, refurbish their uh, building stock. I think there is, there is interest. It's, um, so of course it needs time and it needs, it needs attention. And uh, I'd like to find more opportunities to speak to my, to my peers, to other architects to ensure, because I think it's easier for the conversation to start from, uh, through a network of professionals rather than just going you know, to, to a single person course yeah they definitely you guys have the ear of, of obviously the clients as well that you're helping um uh, get all of the different materials together and the different supply angles and you know who's going to be specific what are you going to be specifying throughout the build so yeah it makes sense yes. to go via the designer okay great so we talked about sustainability knowledge and how you're helping further that amongst your peers which is amazing um a real story um and now i wanted to kind of quiz you about the challenges because there are quite a few um but maybe what are the key challenges that small practices like yourself find when you're trying to integrate sustainable design principles into projects well i mean the first the first challenge is cost i mean right now in in the uk and i think in the world the construction costs have gone up a lot and uh, our, our mindsets have not yet adapted including our clients mindsets and so a lot of our early conversations are about you know let's come back to earth unfortunately this is where we are we need better contractors cheaper contractors ideally uh, more efficient contractors you know construction is very wasteful and i think now with the new increase in costs 
we cannot be as wasteful as we used to be. We cannot be as, you know, we can, I mean, contractors cannot do as many mistakes. I mean, the, everything has to be a bit more precise and more tight. Because, uh, of course, the, the first things that we lose are uh, some, some design quality and, 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 and kind of environmental aspects or technology or ecology, etc. So, so the landscape is first thing that boom goes, and then and then you start losing uh, that the the journey which felt like a luxury, but it was really kind of cr critical to a certain aspect of the design. And, uh, fine, and then and then then when it comes to uh, you're getting a different kind of border that's probably double the cost, but it will pay itself in time, and it's electric, then it, it you know it's the next one in line and mm. and so on and so forth there needs to be i think the whole industry needs to kind of up up the game up their game i think the government should help and i think more in general uh, a little bit through no more gas but in several of our projects or ideas that we have for similar uh, other other kind of research projects we have the small tiny scale is completely overlooked in general because it's such it's such a pesky problem. There's so many case studies. There's such little money on each one of them, but it's it's really what what, what will drive change. I think. So it it really should be because that's where the innovation is done in architectural design. For example, that's where you know young architects learn their things, and that's where uh, people who um, a client who is perhaps a musician learns about ecology sustainability, or another client who is a you know investor in finance knows more about sustainability and ecology so it's it's re it really kind of spreads knowledge and kind of um kind of drives a lot of conversations and of course it, it's also what what really drives change I mean, physically because again like we have 17 million borders to replace we have at least 20 million buildings that need some form of upgrade and it won't just happen it just cannot happen like this it just no. Focus really should be on the small projects because by now, you know, the big new builds, easy. It's really easy. No, it's really easy to understand what's a net zero new build. I mean, relatively easy, but there's enough knowledge and money around a big new building to, to uh, not make like awful mistakes on how to build it and, you know, how to make it net zero. So, so you're saying the key challenges are sort of budget, as in the, the, um, the just where the economy is today, and how much clients have to um, allocate to their build in general. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's also how the knowledge for um, younger practices and the contractors who are um, uh, associated with small. Yeah. projects and the clients so it's a kind of education of those three key players yeah it's it's education but also academia doesn't dedicate a lot of time to small projects to identifying this kind of clear issue which is so central to like you know, the path to net zero uh, academia big institutions the government itself i mean they it's it's just not sexy it's not mm. sexy so it's not sexy and it's very difficult so mm. so it's a lot easier to say to see a, 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 a professor a university professor ah, you know what we we retrofit this um, big university building was so complicated. We had to dig up the street, the courtyard to put in a ground source heat pump. Five years project, like I'm a hero. Uh, yes, you are. But, but like in that same time, another 3 million borders were installed. Another 200,000 buildings were refurbished with zero upgrades, you know? Mm. So because it's, it's not sexy because it's not easy, you know? It's sometimes mm. it's small things, you know? So, yeah. 
No, I, I, I read a, an article from the Building Centre that came out this, this summer. It was quite interesting. It was talking about how buildings are sort of, at the moment, still being thought as as fast fashion, you know, about upgrading or what your neighbours are doing or yeah. the latest, you know, tiles or look or aesthetic, but they're not necessarily thinking about uh, the future. This is how sustainable it is. How can yeah. I, uh, you know, live um, uh, within my means in terms of you know lowering my bills, yeah. let alone how I'm impacting the climate crisis. Yes. Um, so that's quite that's quite an interesting topic. And that kind of brings me neatly on to sort of the next thing I wanted to ask you was about upgrading pre-war London. You know, most of the housing stock is pre-war um, or, or definitely, you know, built. And do you have any specific strategies? Obviously, we've, we've seen or kind of your infrared panels, um, but what other cost effective strategies or innovative approaches have you honed in your small practice to tackle this effectively while staying within a, in a tight budget? Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, the, 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 it's always a combination between a brief and a budget. In the other world, you retrofit it completely. So um, a pre-war, let's call it a solid wall building, so it doesn't have a cavity. So if the building has a cavity, then you insulate the cavity, and that's an easy win. Just be careful to make sure that people who do it, who know what they're doing, but otherwise there's kind of structural issues that you can have by you know, putting pressure inside the cavity. But let's assume it's building that solid walls don't have a cavity so uh, usually they will have um, a timber floor suspended floor and um, a ventilated roof with uh, with a very thin ceiling structure the easiest wins are the insulation of the roof of the ceiling and uh, of the of the floor uh, definitely you should do that so what we do so our strategy in general is identifying identifying kind of the the hanging fruits and going on those as, as first and then we kind of we gradually ramp up the the cost the effort and and with with minor and minor returns so the like highest returns lowest cost at the beginning and then we slowly so our basic ones are uh, floor and ceiling insulation then immediately after it's the um, energy engine to switch it to electric ideally, so either a heat pump or one of these, a tepio or the infrared. Infrared tends to be quite expensive, so it's more kind of high-end in flats, but um, tepio or, yes, uh, a very there, there are very clever um, pressurized hot water cylinders as well that can help you reduce your bills and uh, take up less space. They're amazing. Uh, Mixergy. And then after that, it's, uh, we try to improve uh, air, air tightness. So um, that's also an easy win. Uh, doors in the UK have like two inches gaps all around. It's, it's crazy. It's like being outside. You can see the, um, you know, those, those, uh, those lots for the mail. I mean, just be careful. Sometimes you just add the second door or just by sealing all around. And the same thing, every window should be sealed. If you have the budget, replacing the window with double glaze is also a, a really important. So you're, you're at the same time sealing all the gaps and improving a lot of thermal um, performance of, of, of the windows. And after that, you're in a more complex and risky territory. Um, because most of the time, uh, pre-war uh, construction is, of course, brick. It's usually brick-facing. Often planning will not let you insulate the walls uh, from the outside, and therefore you have to insulate from the inside. Now, insulating from the inside is a risky matter because basically 
if you imagine there's a, there's a wall here and outside is zero degrees and inside is 20 degrees, the inside is 20 degrees, but also humid and there's a higher pressure. And this, all this air and water and hot air and water wants to push out, push through. Okay. So if it pushes through, it pushes through and it encounters the zero degrees in some side, somewhere inside the main wall, this water will kind of go in and out. But if you have insulation inside, the, the coldest the surface will be the inside of the wall. Then there's insulation here. And that's where you create condensation and mold and all the rest. So, mm. so the, the, the best way to do it is to use insulated plasters or to use natural materials that make sure that there are no air gaps. And it's uh, an expensive, uh, it's not super expensive, but it's kind of labor intensive and you have to do it carefully. Uh, because the, 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 I think that uh, if, if I were to kind of... Um, promote this as a, as, a, as, a, um, as a policy for everyone, I would say, no, don't, don't do it because, because it's, there's more risks than, than, than return. The, 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 the ideal return is to have uh, an incredible uh, um, upgrade of the, of the building fabric, but the risks are massive. There's, uh, you know, I mean, if, if it's someone with, with a lot of money and a lot of knowledge that you know, they have involved an architect and a good supplier and a good contractor, then yes, by all means. For the standard person who wants to do a little extension, who wants to fix something, I would say stay away. And I would stay away from any other form of uh, interior insulation, like the ones with uh, vapor barriers. They're, they're, all, they're all, I don't think they do work. I think there's more and more literature showing that... Um, uh, badly done insulation from the inside is is uh, so much more dangerous than than what than than the the, the improvements and the the benefits it can give. That's a really good warning. Um, and I suppose it's to when you're in that situation with that limited budget, it's better if you are doing an extension to then the new build part of your uh, uh, extension. You can obviously bring yeah. it up to standard. You bring it up to standard. You can you can bring it slightly higher than standards. We love uh, green roofs, for example, that kind of greatly improve the performance. Again, there's uh, as usual. There's kind of you know I, I like using like the, the Pareto principle where you try to, with twenty percent of the effort to obtain eighty percent of the return. Mm-hmm. So I am um, unless again there is there's a lot of budget. I am I, I we, we don't specify triple glazing, for example, tends to be much more expensive, but. I mean, some of our some of our colleagues that work with uh, you know higher budgets, but uh, I'd say more committed clients or often public clients, they can afford to do that, and I would love to do that. But I'm mm. talking about you know just let's just uh, identify a, a, a standard form of intervention for every single you know refurbishment. Uh, I would prescribe kind of uh, uh, an obligation to do the the loft and the floor to. Uh, to insulate the loft and the floor, and ideally, a good incentives to replace windows. That that would be that would be fundamental. Okay. So keeping it to the basics is your sort of go-to uh, effective strategy if you are on a budget. Um, yes. And there's no sort of special material that you like to work with, or some other tactic that will help you um, be more environmentally no so uh no the the loft insulation you you just buy it and you can put it on you put yourself it's so easy just roll it down just make sure there's not so many gaps and then boom you've saved money on your bills forever the uh, ground floor the it's that's a bit more complicated in some cases you have enough space you have a crawl space in other cases the project demands that the floorboards are lifted therefore fine in other cases you can't and uh, in that, in those cases, you can use uh, there's these there are these um, robots that spray insulation from 
inside the crawl space. So you can wow. find companies that have these tiny robots, kind of kind of like a Roomba, but instead of um, dusting up, pulling up, yeah, yeah they're <laughs> putting insulation underneath. It kind of tapers towards the edges so it avoids the risk of uh, of uh, rotting the um, the ends of the of the joists. So it's 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 very clear clever uh, um, technology. Then, of course, after that, I would, uh, I mean, see, sealing the gaps around doors and windows is not rocket science. It's just easy. It should be mandatory. And then I would move to the energy engine where, I mean, if, if your boiler is new, it doesn't need replacing, well, just keep it fine. Um, then put in a thermostat that helps a lot kind of reducing this waste. Mm. Uh, if the boiler is, is older and needs replacing or even possibly relocating, uh, then go on to no more gas and find an alternative. Mm -hmm. then it's okay. uh windows yeah Got and it. then w once you've replaced the windows and you've insulated roof and ceiling uh you can definitely install a, a heat pump if you have a garden and if you if you don't have a garden or a space outside again go into or to no more gas and you'll find you'll find a solution um that's fit for your type of property size and type that's great. I feel like we've been to a practical guide. We should we should yeah. give these to clients. We should give this yes. recording to a client. And say, look, this is what you need. This is your brief before you want to extend your home. Think about these things and think about your budget. Yes, because yes. I feel uh, speaking to other architects who also have a sustainable uh, a focus, um, they have said, I almost try and prevent my clients from doing an extension. I want them to think about their home as it is now and yeah. with with what you've just said all of those basic elements that you can do now and yes. then we can talk about what's left in your budget to do anything else exciting. absolutely absolutely yeah so now for the open house um, we presented one of our projects in teddington called teddington called the loop house and we did a little booklet on ecology and design and the, the very first uh, chapter uh, on kind of a, a ecological mindset is is exactly to to value what is there already, to make sure that you really do really need this project. And there's the famous episode of Cedric Price, you know, having these couple of uh, 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 clients who were a couple who were always fighting, and and they said, and and the architect said, you know, you don't need a house, you need probably a divorce attorney. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> the project is not there, you know? and and uh, I think often, you know, there's we, we have there's enough space, or definitely you. So in, in the case of this project, uh, this was an existing, um, this was of course a, a, a kind, kind of large house that already had an extension. So we didn't do any new extensions, we just retrofit the existing one. And then we did an extension in the loft bit because I have three children in this space. So we didn't add any square meters. Um, but the second temptation is to get a house that's composed of eight rooms with like uh, load bearing walls into, into a loft, into a, into a large, you know, I mean, I mean, a New York loft, a large open mm. space. And so, and so the, the kind of the main essay of this little booklet was, uh, a sequence of rooms. So, uh, why don't we use this kind of, kind of special, uh, experience of the room as something that we can work with and we can just slightly modify it rather than gen rather than ignoring it. So there's, there's a quality to uh, have a, a sequence of room rather than an open space. And so the work was on to uh, elevating the quality of this experience through small tweaks rather than you know, completely transforming the space. So absolutely, the, the, the first thing is to have an, a, an eye that is open to the qualities of what's there. Okay, fantastic. Well, with that advice and armed with that knowledge now, you know, 
how do you think the government can step in and do more or what role do you think the, the policymakers um, should play in promoting sustainable architecture yeah. in small practices yeah I, I think I think the government should should address the the, the um, I think policy should be addressed as at, at, at uh, improving the um, improving the way things are done at every level as starting from 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 the bottom from the uh, poorest uh, people and the most common interventions. That's how you maximize the effect of your work. I, I mean, there's there's the twenty percent VAT on on works in your uh, homes, and no matter, and it doesn't matter whether you are upgrading the fabric or not, whether your EPC rating goes from E to B, E to A, doesn't matter. Twenty percent. Whereas it's there's zero VAT on a new build. So paradoxically, you get a building that's okay, you demolish it, and then you rebuild a new one, kind of tripling your, your carbon footprint for the project, and you pay zero VAT. There's, there's a, so yeah, you get, you get uh, gold stars. So I think it's, everything is a bit upside down. And um, in, in, most, in most European countries, uh, any work that is done towards improving the fabric should be, is basically free. Either, it's, either there's a tax break in the following five years or 10 years. If that's too much for this country now, maybe just zero VAT. I mean, just EPC rating before and after. If you, if you upgrade it by, I'm just thinking like the most simple possible thing. Now, EPC rating has many, it's not perfect, of course. It's far from perfect, but... You know, it's it's something that we can begin with. So if you improve the UAPC rating by by two points, zero watt. It's and at that point you you will have uh, you know the insulation, the replacing the windows, replacing the the, the boiler is is paid for. Yeah. And you also kind of remove from the market all the kind of the dodgy contractors, uh, you know, the, you know people who don't pay VAT because you know my cousin. So all of that stuff out of the way. You're removing unfair competition and. Um, and you're allowing people to not uh, feel guilty as well for you know for wanting their little extension or you know a piece of joinery because mm-hmm. um, yeah no, I think I that's mean, echoed yeah. by a lot of architects that um, feeling of um, getting rewarded for um, thinking sustainably and improving your home to help. Yeah, it should be a no-brainer. I mean, yeah. it should be a no-brainer. But also, I mean, there is there is added complexity to to improving to upgrading a, a building. And uh, also, also there is this uh, this idea that it's a strange thing that there is this idea that instead the 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 upgrades should be enforced through building regulations, which is which is again a bit crazy because you're you're just you're just increasing complexity but not giving any any rewards any help. And at some point, the system breaks. Uh, people will just not do the work. But then you get the house that's not fit for purpose and it's not been upgraded and unhappy uh, people. So, I mean, there's, there's several incentive, uh, incentives on, you know, several things. I think, I think reducing VAT or zero VAT on, uh, on that, that would be, that should be like a no-brainer. And then I think you should go beyond. You should really try and, you know, um, help people with uh, lower incomes to, you know, just give them, uh, just give them the cash. You know, you have to do this. Well, this is cash. There is an incentive for um, for heat pumps right now to replace a heat pump. They, the government will give you seventy five hundred pounds to put a heat pump instead of a boiler, which is great. Don't get me wrong, but clearly it's an incentive that's uh, kind of aimed or that will favor the, the 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 richest part of the population, the people who can afford a a heat pump, which costs fifteen thousand pounds, and b have a garden. You know, are 
can afford to retrofit of their house already. I don't understand why there, there are no incentives for things like the, the Tepio zero emissions boiler, for other forms, for other uh, kinds of, of heat engines that are um, not as sexy as the heat pump, but uh, that are the only options for several kind of lower income households. Yeah, I've heard of grants, I think, in Italy and other European countries where if you're upgrading, um, then they will match whatever sustainable construction elements you're putting in with yes. the, a government grant. So it, it, it yes. can be done. Um, Absolutely. You, you, you get it all back in uh, five to ten years uh, in tax, tax cuts, tax uh, discounts. Mm. So uh, it's, it's a no-brainer, really. Yeah. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, and then something I like to ask to sort of round off the, the questioning, the interrogation, is um, to help other architects. So people that have either started a practice and have been traditional architects and are, are thinking, how do I upskill? How do I become more knowledgeable? Apart from doing a PhD in ecology, what, what can they do Davide, to, to, to help them? Where can they go? What can they learn? What, you know, what, would, you, what would be your top tips for them um, who are either starting their own practice or wanting to become more sustainable. Yeah. Well, the, the REBA has, has a several publications on sustainability. Uh, we are members of the Green Register of uh, Construction of uh, the Green Register of Construction Professionals, and that's an amazing network of people. They do uh, webinars and, and courses on on really the basics of retrofit, uh, and really at a scale that is understandable. That's that's ideal for us that we do like small. Uh, project. So it's, it's, it really starts with a standard terraced house. And uh, I think those, those webinars, those, those uh, sessions are incredibly useful. And they can go all the way up to passive house level. But the, the basic ones, like how to retrofit a traditional building, which is like a week long. It's like a four sessions, that are three, four hours each. That's, those are perfect. And very, very, very cheap. And then, there's, of course, there are several institutions and, and associations that, can, that will provide um, uh, guidance. Uh, Leti, um, the STBA, the Carbon Trust. There are s several that I, I, I know. If, you, if you're writing this down, I can send links to. Uh, yeah, that'd be these. great. Yeah, absolutely. We can put them in the show notes for sure. Yes, yes. And uh, I, again, I, I think I think I, I would try not to get too entangled in the several kind of positions and points of view about about sustainability. Um, try to find the kind of the 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 real real basic aspects and maybe and try try to keep try to keep those as as a kind of non-negotiables almost and everything should be negotiables with clients because of course if you don't have the money you don't have the money uh but you know front and center in 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 well um thanks so much for your time today um and apart from nomoregas.org how can uh people get in touch with you to further this conversation absolutely so it's uh of course it's an italian name it's unagru u-n-a-g-r-u dot com yeah and we have yeah you can you can subscribe to our newsletter and of course you can call us uh, we also are based in uh, moving office uh, this week we are based in Hackney Downs in East London you can come and visit us we have a nice red and red office and we'll give you a <laughs> coffee hence you're camping out on site using all of yeah. your, your sites <laughs> as your, your mobile yeah. office <laughs> Yes, even my office is a site. So, I mean, wherever I am is a site. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thanks again. And that's a wrap on this episode of Architects of Ambition. I'm Lyndon Dover, thanking you for joining us on this podcast, proudly presented by Weaver, 
where connections are more than just blueprints. They're the building blocks of reality. Until next time, stay ambitious and keep designing those dreams. <laughs>